You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. Joining us today is Matthew Weatherly-White. Matthew is an investor, entrepreneur, capitalist philosopher, and a globally recognized thought leader in impact investing. Matthew was the co-founder of the Caprock Group and principal architect of their market-defining impact investing platform. He recently left Caprock, winding down a near three-decade-long career as a wealth advisor to families and institutions, and is now currently under contract with Penguin Random House to pin a book on the future of capitalism. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Gina. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to join you. For sure. Well, um, you know, you've been, you've been, your name has been told to me at least a half a dozen times in the past three or four years of like, hey, you know, you got to meet this guy up in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> and I, he, you know, you'll have a lot in common with him. And I trusted the universe to uh, introduce me when uh, the time was right. And it just happened to be somebody thought the same thing, uh, you know, a few months ago and introduced us. So I feel really fortunate to be able to um, share this space with you and also to hear your story. I know a little bit about your story, but would love to dive into how, like, how did you establish the foundation in your life? Because I know you come from a traditional finance background or what I refer to as a one-dimensional finance background, but where was that moment, that aha moment, realizing like, hmm, this isn't working for me. And where did the journey really begin for you? Yeah, I'd say that there were two dimensions to that. The first being the aha moment when I recognized that my career at Smith Barney was not going to hold me. And that was in the immediate aftermath, actually in the immediate lead up and then aftermath of the dot-com implosion. Um, I clearly remember the telecom analyst, Jack Rubman, on a morning call talking about tele, uh, WorldCom and just like pounding on the table saying, we have to buy this, we have to buy this. This is a great company. They're laying all this dark fiber. Um, it's the company of the future, et cetera, et cetera. And then in his comments, he said, I was sitting in a board meeting and I heard that they were going to do this. My first reaction was, wait a second, why is an analyst sitting in the board meeting? Isn't that a violation of the Securities and Exchange Act of 1933 and 34? Like, isn't that a problem that he just announced that? And so I sort of, my radar went up at that comment. And then I just started really understanding like all the conflicts of interest in that traditional Wall Street broker dealer model. And the more I thought about it, the less tenable it became for me to remain there. And it just took me a long time to figure out how to exit gracefully and, you know, be responsible um, for the, you know, the families who had entrusted me with their, with their financial world um, to that point. And, um, 
And so that was for the first, the first part of your question. And the second part of the question is sort of how did I sort of stumble into impact? And I'd say the roots actually go much deeper. My mom um, is sort of a proto-environmentalist <laughs> in my world. Um, you know, she, uh, she taught me to um, embrace with sort of wild, exuberant abandon the, 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 the natural world in Colorado. So mountains have always been a really big part of me. And then we used to, you know, go down to the local organic food store and scoop the oats out of the wooden barrels, you know, and when I was really little, that was sort of a part of it. And so while it wasn't a, a, a formal training or a formal introduction to the idea of a different way of being in the world, that was sort of part of it. And then I went to wall street and I met um, a woman who was running Smith Barney's socially responsible investment fund. And we became good friends. Um, And she ended up going to Trillium and then uh, moved on from there and started her own firm. And we're still really close. But um, that conversation led me to go to an SRI and Iraqis conference in 1994, I think it was, um, which I think it was the very first year they had that. Um, And when I landed in Colorado Springs for this conference, I felt like, ah, yeah, these are actually my people. Like this is more my tribe. I felt very comfortable with, with, um, with the conversations. I felt very comfortable with the sort of the philosophical orientation of the people that were building this SRI movement, you know, socially responsible investment movement. And yet having spent some time in a sort of a one dimensional capitalist world, it felt like it was a lot of magical thinking going on around the room. And so while I felt an instinctive affinity for the tribe, I also felt a sort of an intellectual disconnect from the conclusions that were being surfaced um, there. And so I sort of drifted away from it, but that was sort of, that was the, there, you know, there wasn't really an aha moment from my journey to impact. Um, it was more this sort of constellation of disparate forces that all sort of led to me to this, this realization that there had to be a, a different way. And then in 2007, um, I was introduced to um, a group of people who I have subsequently come to think of as my mentors in impact investing. And it was at Georgette Wong's first zero trade-off conference in the Bay Area. And it was a, it was a totally random invitation. Georgette was working as a sort of receptionist type of person at um, a fund of funds on Sand Hill Road. And we had some capital with them. And I went into this meeting there and on my way out, Georgette pulled me aside and said, you know, I think you could really enjoy this conversation that I'm hosting tomorrow if you're not busy, why don't you come? And so I went to this gathering and I didn't know anything about it, but there was, you know, Charlie and Lisa Kleisner was there and John Goldstein was there and Raul Pomares was there. And they were all talking about this thing called impact investing. And I'd never really heard of it. And I guess, I guess having already said there was no aha moment, I think that was probably my aha moment where I said, it was just like, holy, mm, this, this is what I've been missing. This is exactly what I've been missing. And I've dedicated my career to it since then. Now I'm guessing you were on you were in New York at one time, and now you're in Boise, Idaho. I mean, how does one uh, take off the suit and I mean go all and find their way into uh, Boise, Idaho, of all places? Yeah, so um, my Wall Street tenure was incredibly short. Um, in 1987, I graduated from college and sort of landed on Wall Street, and it was it was a bad fit. And you know, fortunately, 87 October 87 happened, and I took that as a sign that needed to leave. So I actually went from there to Sun Valley and I was on the ski team at Dartmouth. And so I was coaching skiing and I was writing for the local weekly newspaper and I was folding towels at the Sun Valley athletic club, (laughs) sort of trying to piece together a living, um, not wanting to be a professional. 
And um, I ended up meeting a man whose wife had a large foundation and he hired me to do some original research for his second or third PhD, um, literature and the law, which is another great story. And he just liked the way that I thought. And so he said, hey, you know, we're trying to do this thing with our foundation and it's about managing asset managers and it's really different. And have you ever thought about like getting into that world? And so he basically tucked me under his wing and um, I worked with him for about a year and a half um, doing that. And at the end of that time, he said, all right, I'm going to fire you. And I'm going to tell, <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody else in the Valley not to hire you. Because if you stay here, um, you'll be trapped by the beauty of this place. And you have to go, you have to leave. Um, and I, I was so pissed. Like that basically ended our friendship in a weird way. Um, and yet, it, you know, in years later, I realized with hindsight that that was the biggest gift he could have given me. The, the, the sort of escape velocity to leave a resort town. Um, and I moved to Boise and he set me up with some interviews at the brokerage firms. And I was offered a job at Smith Barney and I took it. Um, and that's was that was the beginning of it. And then and then there was probably and then there had to be a moment at Smith Barney because I mean there's obviously institutional imperatives and organizational imperatives at a large, you know, hmm. brokerage dealer like that. And at what point did sort of Matthew's inner world say, ah, I'm at a place in my life like where I can res I respect the tools of Smith Barney. And I respect the opportunity that, that they've given me, but it's now time for me to sort of set my own path and to really sort of color in my vision. Yeah. So it happened in, in two parallel tracks. The first was as an advisor, realizing in the aftermath of the dot-com implosion that my clients who I cared deeply for were just simply revenue tools for the firm. Like there was no loyalty or caretaking for the clients from by the institution. Right. And that's, you know, that's structural. That's not a criticism. It's just, I just realized that that's just simply the way that it's set up. And that made me uncomfortable. Um, but then I was also selected to be part of the leadership development program, which is a two year executive training course where they identify sort of promising younger professionals in the organization. And, and launch them on this very different career trajectory where they're training them to be leaders in the organization with, you know, the hope that eventually they'd rise to the organization and become, you know, mid-level executives or upper-level executives. And I was really enticed by that prospect. It was a two-year-long program. Um, and it was basically a sort of loose format MBA in how to run an international financial services company. And at the end of it, I was like, no way. <laughs> like, this is anathema to everything that I sort of hold dear in my soul. <laughs> and so I stepped off of that track, which was unheard of, right? Anybody who was, was sort of anointed to join this program sort of had their career mapped out and their path to riches was virtually insured. Um, and for me, I just, I just couldn't do it. Like, peering into the bowels of that organization made me realize that, you know, the conflicts of interest that are structurally embedded in a Wall Street broker-dealer firm were just simply untenable to me. Now, having said that, like if, if your objective is to become wealthy and you can operate functionally within that organization, like of course it's going to work for you. Um, and I'm trying really hard not to be subjective in my evaluation of that. It just wasn't a good fit for me. And the more I learned, the more I realized I had to exit. Um, so yeah, so I interviewed at, um, at some regional brokerage firms and it just struck me that those were just sort of 
lower resourced versions of, of Smith Barney. And then I, <laughs> and I was, you know, on a, a pretty deep conversation with Goldman Sachs about opening up a Denver office. I'm, I'm originally from Colorado. And so that sort of made sense. And I ended up not doing it for a bunch of reasons. I interviewed at a, at a fund of funds based in Seattle that was doing a lot of sort of hedge fund composite stuff. And right before I was going to accept the position there, they were indicted. <laughs> so I, you know, dodged that bullet barely and sort of along that journey of lots and lots of interviews and lots of thinking about what my off ramp might be. I realized that I actually love what I do. Um, I loved being a wealth advisor. Um, I love people. I love the markets. It felt like a, a great intersection of all of that. And so I decided, you know, I can probably just start a firm myself. <laughs> and um, there were five founding partners that coalesced around this idea. And we launched in 2005. And yeah. what is it in particular that you enjoy um, most about working at the nexus of families and markets? <laughs> Helping, helping families understand that if the answer to the question, how much do you need, is more rather than enough, then they are living on almost existentially dysfunctional relationship with money. And being able to help families get to that place where they can quantify what is enough and express that quantification through financial tools. It's like, that's like, you know, that's a little bit like the gift that my friend Tom gave me when he fired me and kicked me out of Sun Valley. It's like, it's, it's like this almost existential level liberation from the tyranny of expectations and the tyranny of social pressure and the tyranny of always wanting more. Um, and so, you know, that piece um, was really, really important. And then selfishly, I mean, investing, as you know, it's sort of this endless three-dimensional chess game. I mean, it's one of the most intellectually stimulating enterprises that we can embark on because everything's always changing. Well, what's going to happen if interest rates rise? Well, what's going to happen if Fed policy? You know, what's going to happen? Yes, thinking through that is just, it's so challenging and engaging and entertaining. Um, and yet, you know, fast forward 15 years, um, not even 15 years, fast forward five to seven years, the, it became clear to me that as much as helping families and solving to the limited extent that I could, the challenges of the capital markets was an endlessly entertaining and engaging um, occupation. It required absolutely all of me in one vertical dimension and touched nothing else, right? My, my, my writing, my music, my outdoor adventures, like all of that was sort of left to wither as I was relentlessly focused on helping, you know, joining with my partners to build this firm. Um, and so I think it's, um, you know, it's, you know, to sort of get to your, you know, the, the, sort of the grammar of impact versus the poetry of impact, which I think you have explored beautifully on other podcasts with other guests you know, it's a little bit like that, right? It's the grammar of building a business versus the poetry of living a life. Yeah. And if the business consumes your life, then there is no poetry. Yeah. But if you do it right, then the grammar supports the poetry of living a rich, adventurous, curious life. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's, and the beautiful part about that is that what we underestimate is how, you know, in the capital markets, we understand leverage really well. 
but in the energy markets and human energy markets, uh, poetry actually is a form of leverage in the grammared world. You can actually increase. Irony of my existence is the more that I incorporate poetry, the more exponentially my grammared world expands. And you would think it would be the exact opposite, right? You would think that there would be a concessionary relationship between, oh, Matthew's taking time with his music, Matthew's fishing, Matthew's doing all these things that are non-financial. And it's those damn silos that actually keep us just painfully suffering in our own um, uh, our, our, our own existence of exclusively, you're right, in that world of building a business, it's so grammarian focused. Yep. And yet it doesn't necessarily have to be. Like, I, I, I'm unsure. And I think it's a Protestant sort of like waspy mentality of achievement that associates poetry with guilt and poetry with, uh, you know, sort of like uh, being sort of bourgeoisie. And whereas, you know, sort of the Protestant work ethic is, is that unless you're down there pounding the nail with a hammer all day long around the clock, you're not doing sort of, you know, sort of anything. Um, which, that aside, I do want to, one of the most fascinating questions that I have going on in my own life, and I hear it coming up more and more, is this, I think it's beautiful. You talk about this existential dysfunction. I want to circle back a little bit here. How, I mean, how did you get people to figure out and honor and identify and say, oh, that they were, that they were moving beyond enoughness and were being um, co-opted by the tyranny of moreness? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, how do you do that? Or how did you do that? Yeah. Um, I would love to say that I had this <laughs> like really beautiful, engaging sort of irresistible story around that. And it's not true. Like it, it, we as a society are so hardwired for more, you know, there's, um, there's this constant whispering in our ear that, you know, if you just had a little bit more, you'd be really, really happy. And it, it brings to mind that, that Harvard business school study where they did this, you know, massive sort of 500,000 person, um, socioeconomic analysis that spanned like the full spectrum of income and wealth. And, and what they asked was a sort of a, a deceptively, um, complicated question, which is, you know, what, what would have to change in your life? What would you have to add to your life for you to be happy? And what they discovered was that everybody, almost everybody in the study had calibrated themselves instinctively, subconsciously to wanting about 10% more than they had. So <laughs> for example, you were earning $30,000 a year. Your answer would be, well, if I could just take my family out to a nice dinner once a month, I'd be really happy. Whereas if you were earning a million dollars a year, you'd say, well, if I can just afford to fly first class all the time, I'd be happy. And if you're earning $10 million, well, if I could just afford to fly private, you know, it's like, yeah. and, you know, it's like um, our appetites are scaled incrementally asymmetrically to our resources. And so the flip of that, you know, lots and lots of country musicians have probably written about this, <laughs> but you know, if you can just love what you have, rather than want what you don't, like suddenly the happiness sort of flows in. And so I sort of took that observation and I'm not, you know, I'm not the architect of this tool, but we, you know, CapRock, we built this just ridiculous lifetime discount and cash flow model. And the hack was that 
by iterating on this thing for months, people became more and more vested in the accuracy of the model. And one thing we all know about models is that they're wrong. <laughs> we just don't know how they're wrong or in, in, to what extent they're wrong. But people became so vested in the accuracy of this that they really committed themselves emotionally. And when the model then told them, hey, you have enough, it like opened up this weird and wonderful aperture of acquiescence to not needing more. And the phrase I've used in the past is that, you know, we were able to liberate people from the tyranny of the S&P 500, which is just to say, liberate them from the tyranny of comparing themselves with other people <laughs> and always finding themselves lacking because who outperforms the S&P 500 with a whole portfolio? Like nobody does. I mean, just own some fixed income as part of your portfolio. And by definition, you're going to underperform except in down, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so it was really, a tr it was like a, it was like a trick. Um, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't anything beautiful. Um, but once it happened and once, once people understood that they had enough, then suddenly the conversations just wow. went right open, right? It was I like, bet. what are you going to do with this? Right. You yeah. have effectively excess capital. What do yeah. you want to do with that? Well, I think you're touching on, you know, in a very Jungian way, you're touching on the anxiousness and fear that comes up with, uh, you know, the terminal nature of all forms of life. And I wonder how much of this moreness is uh, related or this moreness imperative is related to the lack of recognition around the ending of life. Um, you know, because if, if you don't, if, if you feel like you're going to live forever, you might not have enough, right? So the narrative right now is making sure that you always have enough for when like you're not working per se. And I mean, this is like American dogma narrative uh, right now. It's deep. It is that dogma runs deep, super deep. Right. And, and, and it's a repeated story. And now it's so super literal that it's a fish in, you know, it's like a fish in water. And I mean, no one even knows that. I mean, they're in water. Yeah, what is water? <laughs> yeah, that's right. What is water? I'm curious about this because I think it dovetails into what I want to explore is where you're going with your book on the future of capitalism and how is it tied to our existential nature? How is it tied to, uh, like, do you bring in existential states like death? Um, is death a part of it? Is psychology a part of it? Is it sociology, anthropology? Is there humanity's lens to this future of capitalism or is it still sort of like rearranging the market pieces? Uh, so it's equally as entertaining, but just feels different. Oh man, that's such a great question. I had never, I hadn't thought about it that way. And yet I'm just going to hold this. Oh, you, I can't show my audience. You can't show your audience <laughs> on my desk, which is titled the worldly philosophers. And it puts in within the context of the humanities, this sort of lineage of economists, starting with Adam Smith and actually going back to sort of Malthus, pre-Smith, and sort of running all the way through sort of Keynes, right? That's sort of where that's sort of where he stops. And 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 Heilbronner's thesis is that every economist, sort of leading up to the early to mid 20th century we were all a form of, they were all sort of a form of philosophers, right? And it wasn't until economics became sort of seen as a hard science that the philosophical lens was removed. And so I think in that this book is, the first third of this book is really um, reinterpreting Adam Smith 
effectively. And I'm positing the idea that while Smith was the, the sort of first true economist, all of his thinking was rooted in philosophy, in particular moral philosophy. And so you cannot read the Wealth of Nations as a standalone document. You have to link it back to his theory of moral sentiments. And if you read the theory of moral sentiments and then reinterpret the Wealth of Nations through that particular set of lenses, the Wealth of Nations ends up becoming a very different kind of book. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is sort of bring the the humanitarian perspective back to Adam Smith. And instead of focusing on the invisible hand of the market, which, you know, he didn't even really write about it in that way, the way that we think about it, instead focus on the, the, the full spectrum of his work and contextualize it really differently. And so that allows me to then recontextualize what's happening in the capital markets right now. So I think my, 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 my quick answer would be no, I'm, I'm not. Um, but you've given me a really interesting idea. <laughs> Um, And even as you were saying it, um, when I was in college, I was fascinated by samurai literature and I carried around a copy of Miyamadu Musashi's Gorin no Sho for years. And, you know, in in that book, Musashi is constantly reminding us to meditate on death. Yeah. Not in order to be, um, you know, maudlin about it, but rather to prepare for death and not to be terrified by it. And I think that as as a sort of a Bushido ethic, meditating on death in order to be prepared for it is like very much part of the way that the samurai were able to live such extraordinarily courageous lives. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, leaving Caprock was, was terrifying for me. And I think, you know, objectively looking at my balance sheet, I'm not, you know, intergenerationally wealthy or anything, but for me to look at my balance sheet and conclude anything other than I have enough would be, would be, would be insane. And yet my emotional feelings around having enough are profoundly terror based. Like I look at this and I think, Oh my God, it's not going to be enough. And what happens if this, and what happens if that? And suddenly it's like, I find myself retreating into this place of anxiety Mm. and doubt and regret about, about leaving because you know, when, when you're part owner of a multi-billion dollar private wealth you know, advise your firm. It's like your income is really, really good. And your equity stake in the firm is growing. And it's like, ah, and to walk away from that is oddly disorienting financially. Right. It's like, and yet I know, I know intellectually that I'm totally okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have enough. (laughs) It's weird. It's really weird. Yeah. So does that, um, the, so, so when you're exploring these, um, I'm I see. I'm interested in um, the why behind your journey now, like how you're uh, mapping it out in the form of text, um, not not in terms of text on the phone, but in terms of yeah. a book form. Yeah. Um, why did you choose the form? Why Why did you choose um, the topic you did? And then the, the question about the how is, um, how is it going to be and how is it going to resonate with people uh, beyond just a cognitive, another cognitive framework? Yeah. That's a multi-layered question, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there was a little bit of serendipity here um, because I was invited to give a talk 
at a, a salon slash retreat a year and a half ago. Um, and the audience was carefully curated and they're really interesting people and they're all sort of leaders in their world. Um, and I was invited to speak on um, sort of pre presenting a challenger narrative to a narrative that is so ubiquitous and so pervasive that it becomes invisible to us. The one that I chose was capitalism and how capitalism operates as an optimization mechanism for financial profit. And I said, look, that, that's, not, um, that's not a truism, right? That's just a story that we tell ourselves. That's how capitalism operates right now because a handful of people have told us that's what needs to happen. But, you know, we're the ones who make up the rules up and we can develop a challenger narrative to that prevailing narrative. And this is what it might look like. Right. And so I sort of walked through what that might look like. And then I shared anecdotally some of the really cool things that are happening in the dark, quiet corners, of the cowboy markets to illustrate how this alternative narrative could develop and could become the sort of the new RNA slash DNA of capitalism. And then the audience was the CEO of Penguin Random House. <laughs> and she came up to me afterward and said, you know, your talk has just been rattling around in my head. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, you know, I, I, made a I made a living as a writer for a long time. I've continued to write. I've always wanted to write a book. I know there's a book in me, but I've just never had the time, bandwidth, support, whatever, to actually, you know, cowboy up and write the thing. And, um, and she said, well, I happen to be the CEO of Penguin Random House. Oh, and wow. I would like to be the company that... Um, provides a place for your voice to be heard because I think your voice needs to be heard. It's a voice of optimism around capitalism as opposed to the sort of the endless round of, of pessimists that we, that we are constantly hearing about, you know? And, and, um, and so we sort of went back and forth for six or eight months and I ended up signing a contract and agreeing on what the book was going to be about. So um, how, how, the, how the form was, <laughs> was kind of offered to me, I guess. But the why is a different question. And, and for me, I think, I'm one, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist in my bones. Like I believe in the power of the capital markets um, as a transformation agent. Two, I think that a lot of people misunderstand how evolutionary capitalism is always, not just how it can be, but how it is. It's constantly reflecting, sometimes with a, with a long delay, the prevailing mores of our society, right? It constantly is. And I think when I look at what's happening in the mores of our society, you know, the tailwinds of social justice the tailwinds of an ever crystallizing body of environmental science, like that starts pushing capitalism in, the, in a very clear direction. And I think capitalism is going to respond. And what I'm trying to help people understand is how to navigate that transition, how to understand that transition and navigate it so that when the future version of capitalism arrives, it supports us and helps us and you know, helps us thrive rather than sort of disorients us and, and, and corrodes the bonds of our society. And so Really, like, why is because I feel like I have a perspective that might be able to help people navigate this extraordinary change that's in front of us. Yeah. That, that sort of touches on everything that we do, and that's money, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I love the flesh. Yeah I, I, yeah, I love this idea of this connection between um, uh, the moral foundation of our culture driving the capitalistic culture, because I think the belief is, is that capitalism colonizes over all other forms of dimensions, the morality, you know, religion, ethics, policy, and so forth. But you're suggesting that the collective life force and the penchant for justice over time, and, you know, whereas drives potentially the, the reformation 
of capitalism. And it just constantly mutates in response to what's happening when our inner world, collective inner world, gets imbalanced or has uh, particular desires to go in, in a direction. Is that correct? I think that's exactly right, Gino. And, and what's fascinating to me is how obscure that evolutionary response tends to be. You know, wh whereas a, you know, if, if you look at it really objectively, as an example, you know, slavery was a perfectly acceptable cog in the global labor supply chain, like totally acceptable. Sure. Obvious way to control costs. You know, I can get really cynical and really dark here and suggest that as a, as a um, component of capitalism, it was actually a highly functional mm -hmm. device. And yet at some point it became utterly morally reprehensible to, to own another human being. And so slavery, and we fought a war over it. I mean, it's not, it's not like it went quietly into the night. Like sure. it was such a functional part of capitalism that boy, like people did not want to let it go, but it became morally totally unacceptable. You know, similarly colonialism was seen as a great way to enrich the colonizers, right? Of course, like go do that. That makes all the sense in the world. And I mean, great, Nations were competing <laughs> to colonize the world. <laughs> like, who can do it fastest? Because it was, you know, it's like, yeah. and yet in, in, in our, in, in the not too distant past, like that became an unacceptable way to organize global trade. You know, child labor. And all, I can point to all sorts of sure. dimensions of capitalism, which were totally functional. Like child labor, man, that's a great way to keep your labor costs down. But it's repulsive, right? Mm -hmm. But at the time, and you can read all sorts of Victorian, contemporary Victorian accounts on child labor, and they will celebrate the, the productive engagement of otherwise wasteful children in society through employment. And so I think you know, these are all examples of how capitalism can identify highly functional use child labor, mm -hmm. slave labor, colonialism, dumping toxic waste into our nation's riverways, right? Yeah. There's lots of things you can point to, which were from a purely capitalist perspective, highly functional, or from a moral, moral perspective, utterly reprehensible and eventually unacceptable. And I think the same thing is going to happen with climate change. I think the same thing is going to happen with social justice. The more we understand that in particular, black people in America, things to that lens, have been systematically oppressed for hundreds of years, the less tolerant our society will be to continued oppression. Similarly, the more we understand about the crystallizing dangers of, you know, literally existential dangers of, of climate change, the less tolerant we'll be to, um, to the social license to operate businesses, which continue to degrade our natural world. And it's like, yeah, that sounds like a whole lot of futurism, but that's yeah. where I see it, it pointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful thesis. I mean, I have so much to um, ask you about. Uh, one is really pragmatic in terms of um, how to help people sort of navigate that dialectic, that dialectical dance between the capitalistic, the evolutionary capitalism, and and you know this sort of this ethical um, um, and sort of collective movement toward justice over time as awareness arises. And so the first one's pragmatic. The second one is the origin, um, and this is totally a poetic moment. Um, what is the origin? Is like in a cosmic realm, is, is the cosmos keeping a balance sheet 
um, like, like a justice balance sheet. And, and at some point, the balance sheet just gets so out of whack that inevitably weighs down into the marrow of our collective human existence on earth that propels us to have this awareness. I'm just curious about where it actually arises for you, like the origin of the switch, where it's like, yes, capitalism responds really well functionally. And yet at a certain point, it tips. Yeah. And why does it tip? Oh, man, we got to call Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> and ask him. Um, so, so the way that I, I've been thinking about this, and, and I'm not really sure that I'm right or it's, it's necessarily germane, but the way that I've been thinking about this is that culture matters, right? And culture, is, in sort of my understanding of it, is nothing more than a series of narratives stitched together, which collectively help us to explain to ourselves and our descendants this utterly baffling world that is around us, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the narratives are all just stories. And in the specific example of capitalism, the story that we've been telling ourselves, starting with the invisible hand of the market and moving all the way through Friedman's dictum that the social responsibility of business is profit. The story that we've been telling ourselves is basically that business should only optimize along one axis, that axis being optimizing financial profit. And then anything outside of that is either a cost or a distraction or an indulgence. But what I have found working with families who have nosed their way gently into impact investing, and then once they've experienced it, they're all in. All you need to do is to create a safe place for somebody to, um, to change that narrative, to say that, hey, capitalism can do other things than just generate financial return. And as soon as you just give people the permission, that's what it is. You give, you give people permission to recognize that rather than constantly berating them with this, I believe, misinterpretation of Adam Smith and this completely peculiar um, extremism of Friedman, which you know led to the formation of trickle-down economics, which if you saw that recent paper, like is self-evidently not working for 50 years, right? Um, once you give people the permission to challenge that set of assumptions for themselves and for their family and for their foundations or whatever, like they don't ever look back. Yeah. They don't ever sort of take a step in impact investing and say, wow, this is really cool, but no. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. that's where I think that that shift happens and how to do that at scale. I don't know. One of my, one of my real challenges in this world is that it seems to be that for somebody to convert, for somebody to evolve <laughs> from, yeah a traditional slash conventional investor into a multidimensional impact investor requires a personal journey. Yeah. And if for this to um, transact at a societal scale, if in order for this to transact at a societal scale, we need to have millions upon millions upon millions of personal journeys, then it's not going to work. Right. Cause it's not gonna happen fast enough and it might not ever happen at all because if that's what we're depending on, then we're kind of hosed. It's just, it's just not going to work. And that's why with my book, like, you know, there's going to be a handful of people who read it, but you know, who knows, right? I mean, I can, I can tell you that my editor at Penguin Random House feels confident that this could be sort of a Freakonomics type book for people to recalibrate themselves relative to capitalism. 
Mm-hmm. You know? And you know, who knows? Like if if we can, if we if we collectively can give ourselves permission to imagine that capitalism can simply do more, then it will, because that's sure. what it does. Like, like that's the thing I keep getting back to. It's like capitalism is is nothing more than an extraordinarily efficient optimization mechanism. And right now we've all collectively decided, explicitly or implicitly, that capitalism is going to optimize for financial profitability. But if we said to ourselves, okay, henceforth, capitalism is now going to optimize for community resiliency or climate adaptability or whatever it is, well, my God, it would change so fast because that's what capitalism does. It changes changes so fast. (laughs) Um, But right now we're not there. Like we're not there, but we're starting to get it. You know, I I was having um, Hmm. a conversation with somebody recently about uh, Larry Fink's letters and, and they were sort of, um, I don't know, disappointed or cynical. They were cynical about what he was trying to do. And I said, no, do me a favor. Like go back and read all five letters in sequence in one sitting and look what he's doing. Like he is steadily incrementally raising the bar with every single letter. And the first letter was just a shot across the bow. It's like, Hey, I've been thinking about this. We should probably contemplate this. And then it was okay. Like we're going to, we're going to eventually build a framework around this. And then it was, if you don't have a social purpose, we're not going to support you. And then it was, and what that means is X, you know? And I think to me, that's, that's like the, um, that's the, that's the, that's like the framework that has to start to emerge as sort of gradually um, increased sense of permission that we can do this differently guys. Like you can work and, sure. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've lost the thread a little bit here, but um No, I think it's such a beautiful thesis and um look forward to um it's evolving and I'm guessing it will evolve even more as you go through the the natural uh, process of discovery, also known as writing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also known as writing for sure. And uh, I want to end on, you know, I mean you you come to this at a very multidisciplinary uh, perspective and you have a lot of other interest in life. I do too. I'm interested in how sort of your, to end on this note, all of your, in scare quotes, other activities outside of the financial realm and financial thinking inform your financial thinking. Um, and is some way, in some way, does it serve not just as an informing, but it's like, this is who I am. Like when my soul is dialed in, all these are just seamlessly flowing together. And I don't even think in terms of this is finance, this is fishing, this is hiking, this is backcountry, this is playing music, this is writing. I guess where I'm going is, is that when do you know your essence is in like, full force where your matter and your life force are at once a singular sort of phenomena. And, and it's like, you're really just moving through space and time on that plane. And I guess I'm giving you a license here to just sort of explore it and in a nonlinear way and knowing that there's no right or wrong way to answer this. Yeah. And I've never thought about that before. So um, thank you for the room to um, cogitate verbally. Um, So reflecting back on 
the comment you made about sort of the Protestant work ethic, right? So you sort of have to be banging away at something in order to feel um, valued or valuable. Um, I know that for myself, when I am not in flow, I find myself focusing on money. I find myself focusing on, and you know, I know how this is going to sound and I don't like the way it sounds, but I'm going to just go with it anyway. Like when I was, I spent a lot of my time at Caprock prospecting for new clients, right? And when I would think about a client as a potential revenue source, and I would go through the process in my head, well, if this person has, you know, a $20 million balance sheet and they're paying us 80 basis points, that's X revenue. And I know that our net operating margin is, you know, 28%. And so that would be this, and I'm one fifth owner of that. And so my fractional interest in that is $18,000 a year, whatever the number is, right? When I found myself doing that calculation, as I was thinking about um, encouraging um, a, a client an investor to to hire Caprock as their advisor. Like to me, like the most unhappy I have been in my professional life is in those moments. And rarely in those moments was I aware of that. It was always after the fact, right? I would say, oh, right. That's that time when I was really bummed. <laughs> you know, I wasn't exercising. I was not sleeping very well. I was not playing guitar. I was not writing poetry. You know, I was doing this other stuff that was focused on Money, and it's not the same thing as focusing on growing the business because what I also found was that when I felt highly compelled by an intellectual challenge in the business or I felt really attracted by um, working with my partners to solve a particularly thorny problem in the business, one could argue that that activity was also focused on attracting new clients, right? But I never found myself thinking, oh, well, if I get this client, then that means X more money for me. It was more... I was just, I was like, it was a full body experience solving this problem in business. And the result of that was the business grew and I made more money. And so I recognize how slippery this connection might feel, but I think that's, you know, thinking about it, that's when I was not in flow. Now, when I was in flow, it was really hard sometimes to value all of the non-business parts of my life that were contributing because from an objective perspective, they were actually a distraction. They were taking time, energy, emotional content out of the time that I was spending working, working, right? And like the most glaring example of this was I, I took a sabbatical 10 years in and went to France for just under a year. And there was a lot of personal reasons for that, most of which were not very good. Um, but, you know, the, at the meta level, I went to France where I was checked out, right? And oh my God, the separation conversation from my partners was so hard. And I never said, I'm not going to work. I just said, look, I'm going to go to France and I'm going to be doing this differently. And this was, you know, before remote, everything was happening. Yeah. So really a traumatic separation um, from my partners to do this. And yet in the nine months that I was there, I closed the two largest clients that Caprock had at that time and might might still be the two largest relationships <laughs> we had. And I incubated IPAR, which is now a technology spinoff that is an impact reporting and transparency tool. So when I think, you know, you know, objectively, I was more productive from a 
from a contribution perspective, financial and functional contribution perspective, Caprock in that nine months. And I probably was in the 10 years preceding that. Well, I don't know about that, you know, but whatever. So I was highly, highly productive. And yet my partner's experience was, and my own narrative was that I was basically checked out and kind of screwing off in France. And it's like, it's, it, it, it's so difficult to quantify the poetry. It's so difficult to internalize the poetry because it doesn't show up on a balance sheet. It doesn't show up. It doesn't show up on the, the, the hours that you're working, right? It doesn't show up on the numbers of reports that you've distributed to your, to your clients. It's like, and yet I just know like in France, man, from a work perspective, not necessarily from a personal perspective, like, but, but I was totally in flow. So I don't know, man. <laughs> Matthew Weatherly White, thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, wow, like I said, um, you know, I wanted to stick with what's most alive in our conversation and feel like we can chat for uh, three hours for sure. So, I mean, <laughs> thank you so much. Absolutely, Gino. Really, really fun conversation. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.